Okay, this morning as I was driving in from Moore County, <laughs> and I was listening to Adrian Rogers as I always do, um, he made a statement that I just wanted to share with you that was so good. He said, you know, we don't need great faith. We just need faith in a great God. And all God's people said, Amen. That's true. All right, would you open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 19. John 19. And pretty much, I think, we'll be parked there this morning. I might have you flipping over one time to Luke chapter 2, but most of the time we're going to be in John 19. All right, once you get there, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. All right, Father, we come to you today with overwhelming thankfulness in our hearts because we do have such a great God. And we know that your word is faithful and true and that everything in it, its principles, its precepts, its promises are settled forever in heaven. The grass might wither and the flowers might fade and the seasons might change, but the word of God stands forever. It is the bedrock upon which we can live and die. Thank you for sending your son and for his obedience to you, even to the point of death on a cross where he purged us of our sins. We come to you lifting up no other name to you but that precious name of Jesus, that name that is above every name, and asking you in that name that during this next hour nothing would be present that would hinder the working of your Holy Spirit. May he totally have an unrestrained liberty to work in our hearts. We ask that you would prevent us by our thoughts or our attitudes or our doubts or our wandering minds from grieving him or from quenching what he desires to do in every heart that is present here. May he once again, may the, may the Lord Jesus again this morning see the fruit of that one-time travail of his soul and be satisfied with the spiritual growth that he sees here in his children gathered together this morning. For we do pray in his name. Amen. Well, last week we looked exclusively at five verses in Luke. And I really enjoyed that lesson, didn't you? On the penitent thief. That was one of my favorites. Yes. We looked just at Luke because Luke was the only gospel writer inspired to record for us the account of that great cross miracle. And it was a miracle when the penitent thief changed, just totally changed, became a new creature in Christ. Well, today we're going to slow down and look at only three verses. Five verses last week, three verses today. I looked ahead to my, uh, next week it's going to be just two verses. <laughs> But at least we're covering whole lessons. And we are going to cover this whole lesson. Today we're going to look at three verses that are exclusively given to us by John, which is very appropriate because John is involved in this one, in this situation. It directly involved him. This is the third and final recorded event of the first three hours of the Lord Jesus on the cross. He spent a total of six hours, three of them in sunlight, three of them in darkness. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at that eerie darkness that covered the land for three hours. But this is the last recorded event of the first three hours of sunlight on the cross. We have discussed so far the hatred of the provoking crowd around the cross. We looked at the faith of the penitent thief next to the cross. And now our focus is going to be on the subject matter of love a personal concern for those who were below the cross. So we've moved from hatred to faith to love. Now let's look at the passage. That's all the introduction we have, and it's from John 19, verses 25 to 27. It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. 
And will you notice the word home is in italics. That means it's not in the original manuscript. Therefore, he took her onto his own to care for her. John's home was up in Galilee. So obviously, he did not take her that hour to his own home. All right, for the first time in the gospel narratives, we learn that there were some people at the foot of the cross who were there because they loved him. Isn't that refreshing to know that in the midst of all of the open hatred and mockery and and scornful ridicule and even the calloused indifference coming from so many various groups of people that there were at least five with the Lord at this tremendous time of his suffering who were there because they loved him. That is refreshing to find out. We know there were probably more there as well, but at a distance. But there were five right there at the foot of his cross. And four of the five were women. Yay! (laughs) Ivor Powell, who is the author of a uh, commentary on the book of John, which is called John's Wonderful Gospel. Ivor Powell, that's a man by the way, said that if he was a woman, this would be one of his favorite passages because these women were there to comfort Jesus at this terrible time. Of course, it would have been, we have to give the men credit, it would have been a lot safer for a woman to have been there, you know, as opposed to the Lord's disciples, especially right there by the Lord, by, you know, out in the open, because Women weren't, you know, they weren't going to be arrested or anything for being the Lord's mother and aunt. And there were several aunts there. We'll talk about that. But, and they didn't crucify women. Remember, we talked about that. The disciples, it might have been different. Um, John was probably safe because he was so young. He was probably 17, 18, or 19, or in his early 20s. And probably the chief priests would look at him and they say, we're not going to arrest him. He's too young. He probably was just easily deceived by this false Messiah. So they would leave him alone. He was there, you know, with the, with the four women. But the other disciples could have been somewhere watching at a distance. I would speculate that they were. They were out there maybe mingling or pretending to be somebody passing by. Maybe they even had their faces covered. But they would be more easily recognized if they had been in the open right there by the Lord's feet. Um, and how does, how does John like to refer to himself? Did you notice we read? The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his favorite term for himself. He loved to use that. Not that he was saying Jesus didn't love the other disciples but just that he could not get over the fact that Jesus loved him. Can you ever get over that fact? That Jesus, I don't know why he loves me, but I'm so thankful that he does. Well, for the four women with John are named for us. Not all of their names are here, but we do know their names from other places in the scripture. First one listed is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then there is Mary's sister, her blood sister, Therefore, she would be the Lord's aunt. We know her name from elsewhere in Scripture. Remember, she's got two sons, James and John, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. Her husband's name is Zebedee. She came to the Lord one time to ask that her two sons could sit on his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. What is her name? Trivia question. Salome, not salami. Salome. (laughs) And then um, there's Mary, the wife of Cleophas. She was the mother, we find out from other scripture, that she was the mother of James the Less. James the Less was one of the apostles. She was also the mother of another son named Joseph. He was not an apostle. She may have had other children as well, but we know that at least those two sons belonged to her. Her husband's name was Cleophas. Cleophas, tradition says, and so does Dr. Alfred Edersheim, in whom I put a lot of credence, um, but he, they, it says that Cleophas was the brother of Joseph, the stepfather of the Lord. So that would mean that this woman was the aunt, not blood aunt, 
of Jesus on, you know, on Joseph's side of the family. Interesting, isn't it? And then there was who else? Mary Magdalene, called Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, because she was from Magdala, which was a, a city on the Sea of Galilee. These are all Galilean women. Um, it'd be like calling me Catherine West End. <laughs> that would be dumb, but I don't even live in West End. I, you know, it's just, I live a long way from West End, but that happens to be my address. You should call me Catherine Carthage, because I'm closer to Carthage, and that sounds better, doesn't it? Catherine Carthage, there you go. <laughs> it seems significant that three of the four women are named Mary, aren't they? Three of the four. Mary. Now, there's another Mary, but she's not here, Mary, Be- Mary of Bethany. Um, but it's interesting because what does Mary's, Mary ne- mean? What does the name Mary mean? Mary? Do you know? You don't know? That's sad. I'm sorry to have to, sorry to have to tell you, but it means bitterness. <laughs> Remember? Um, the Naomi in the book of Ruth? Mary means bitterness. I'm sorry, I just ruined your whole day, didn't I? <laughs> comes from Mara. Anyway, um, we can only ma- imagine the bitter anguish of these women as they're standing there beholding the horror of the scene before them. Well, this is the first time we hear of Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel. Do you know we have not heard from her in a long time? How many of you were with us way back when we first heard of her? I don't know if you even remember. It was back in Luke chapter 8 long, long time ago, we learned there that the Lord had delivered her of seven demons. It was one of his most stupendous acts of grace performed on a woman ever. And when she was set free from that horrific bondage, she became an eternally grateful uh, convert to the Lord. And she has been ministering to him and his men ever since, along with many Galilean women. We are told they traveled with the Lord. For example, when he would come from Galilee down to Judea, they would go with them and they would probably prepare their food. Some of those women had some sustenance and so they helped support the Lord and his disciples financially. Well, she was one of them. Mary Magdalene never ever is stated in the scripture to have been an immoral woman. She was not a former prostitute. A lot of people think that because she is portrayed that way. Movies have been made about her. A lot of books make her out to be that kind of a woman. There's nothing in scripture that can support that at all. The problem is a lot of people confuse her with that woman who came, had been a prostitute, and was saved by Jesus. And then she came into Simon the Pharisee's house and weeped over the Lord and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her long hair. And they confused her with Mary Magdalene, but she was another woman completely. Mary was a woman who, yes, she had suffered immensely from demonic possession, but there's no support that she was an evil person. There's no support whatsoever that she had an affair with the Lord Jesus. Or even married him. It's just, that's just all totally unbiblical. And now we find her standing at the foot of the cross. She is in full possession of her own mind. No, no de- demons in her, her. Her own spirit. And in the weeks and months to come, she's going to become more and more prominent. Because we find her many more times in the gospel accounts after the crucifixion than before the crucifixion. But let's get back right now to the, to the Lord's mother Mary. I doubt if there had ever been as much unspeakable joy felt by a woman after having given birth to a child than Mary felt at the birth of Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, we're all just joyful when we have our babies, right? How can you not be? But um, how, how her joy must have just been unbelievable because she knew she was giving birth to the Son of God. And yet, in sharp contrast to that joy, think about how there could not be a heavier sorrow for a mother's heart than to watch her perfect son suffer such a cruel, undeserved punishment. And not only was he hanging on a cross 
where he shouldn't have been because he was totally innocent, but there were all these hundreds of people below mocking him and shouting taunts at him, and it was just totally uncalled for, and there was so much hatred everywhere, satanic hatred. She must have just been anguishing in her soul in total perplexity at this entire situation because, of course, she would never, ever forget her visit from the angel Gabriel Would you ever forget a visit from an angel to make such an announcement? She never forgot that. When he first announced to her that she was the woman who was privileged, would be privileged to give birth to the Messiah, and Gabriel had said to her that her miraculously conceived son would be great. He would be the son of the highest. What does that mean? The Son of God. And he said that he would be given the throne of his David. And he would reign over the house of Israel for how long? Forever. And also he said that of his kingdom there would be no end. So how could he now be dying the death of a common criminal? Think if you were in Mary's place. Would you not be confused and perplexed? How did all of this work with what Gabriel had promised to her? It just didn't make any sense. And if there was anyone who knew with absolute positive assurance that Jesus had no human father, who was it? Mary. And she knew his miracle powers. She had been there. I'm sure she watched the whole course of his his ministry, and always got word back from people that he had done this and and done that. She had been there, of course, when he turned water into wine. She knew what he could do, and if anybody knew he was perfect, it was his mother, right? A lot of people might think your children are perfect when you bring them all neat and tidy to church, and they're so sweet, and they say, oh, got perfect children. But if the truth be known, it's known by mama, isn't it? You know what those little sinners are really like. My little granddaughter, <laughs> I had to keep my little granddaughter and grandson while my daughter was doing something this morning, uh, Sunday morning in church. I can't remember what it was she was doing, but she said, you got to watch the kids. So we sit in the back pew when we have them. And she did one of those, you know, screams. <laughs> Everybody in the church said they knew it was her because my son-in-law's face in the choir. <laughs> and then she did the limp thing, you know, the limp thing. <laughs> Yes, she's three Mm. and feeling her Wheaties. (laughs) But we know, a mother, I mean, Mary knew how perfect her son was. She had other children. She knew the difference. She knew watching him grow up. He had never, it was, can you imagine a perfect child who never had a bad attitude, never had, went limp and screamed in church, you know? (laughs) I just can't imagine that. I wonder if, uh, if she didn't think of that day when she and Joseph, as she's standing there at the foot of the cross, thinking about that day when she and Joseph took little eight-day-old baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, and the aged prophet Simeon had approached her and spoken words that confirmed who her baby was, but he had also spoken words that prophesied some things that perplexed her and probably even frightened her, words that she had probably pondered in her heart for many years now. I wonder if she didn't think of those words as she's standing there at the foot of Jesus' cross. You know what he had said to her? And this is where I want you to go over to Luke 2 so you can look at it yourself. Luke 2, look at verses 34 and 35. This is Simeon, the prophet Simeon, who God had promised he would live until he saw the Messiah, remember? And he knew him the minute he was brought into that temple. And Simeon had said some wonderful things. And then he had turned and said directly to Mary these words. Luke 2.34, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. There are several things meant by that those words. But one of them is that that child would would be rejected and refused by Israel. Israel would fall. You know, and we know she did as a nation. She fell and has suffered ever since because she rejected that child. But what else will happen with Israel? 
rise again at his second coming, she will finally recognize her true Messiah. So this child set for the fallen rising again of many in Israel. And what else is this child set for? Look at the next words. And for a sign which shall be spoken against. Now, isn't that interesting? Did you forget about this prophecy? There they are, all these mockers and these chief priests and these Pharisees, and they're asking for a sign from Jesus as he's on the cross. And what is that sign? Come down. Come down from the cross and prove to us once and for all that you are who you say you are. Then we'll believe. They're asking for a sign as they've been asking for a sign all along. And guess what? He is the sign. This child is set for a sign. He himself is a sign. And they are proving that he is a sign because what are they they doing? They're speaking against him, aren't they? And they have been all along. Since he first cleansed the temple, they have been speaking against him. And then Simeon says to Mary, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Also. Who else would have a sword pierce through his soul? Not his side. We know he had a a sword pierce through his side when he died. But here, this is talking about a sword piercing through a soul. His, her soul also means his soul, the child's soul. When did Jesus have a sword pierced through his soul? When he's on the cross. When he's on the cross. At this point, this prophecy is fulfilled in its entirety because Mary, this has got to be the lowest point for Mary, and you know that she is feeling that sword piercing right through her soul. This has got to be utterly devastating for her. as She stands there. Not at all comprehending. Now, she knows who Jesus is. She knows he was born without a human father and that he is the son of the highest. And yet, why is he dying? She doesn't understand that right now he is in the very process of establishing that kingdom of which there would be no end. She'll get it later, but you know there at the foot of the cross, it's not all coming together. She was probably approaching 50 years of age. She had been following the course of her son's ministry all those years. We can be sure of that. And now, although there is so much that she does not understand, so much pain in her soul, she stands there in submission to God's workings at the foot of the cross. She does not lift up her voice in anger at God. She could have said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Couldn't she? She doesn't lift up her voice in anger at all those mockers of her son. And this is where I would have struggled. If they were all there mocking and taunting my perfect son, my wonderful perfect son, and I have a son, he's not perfect by any stretch, but still... I would be, I would be shouting at everybody, you hush up, you don't know what you're talking, I mean, I would have been angry, they would have had to haul me out of there. (laughs) But she doesn't say a word to all those mockers, she's silent. She doesn't faint at the sight of her beloved son in the condition that he's in where he doesn't even look human. That would be awful for a mother to see, wouldn't it? She doesn't run away because she just can't bear it. She, um, she doesn't slump to the ground and just, you know, be there in uncontrolled wailing, which might also be something I would do, evidenced by when our little dog got run over in the driveway. I did that. I just slumped and wailed. <sighs> the women with her were also admirably silent, weren't they? Uh, there's evident, this is really evidence to us of the grace of God to weak, grieving people. Have you ever experienced that? Now, I didn't with my dog, but I did with my mom and dad. You know, God, when you need that extra grace, God will give it to you at the time when you need it. I've seen it just evidenced lately in our church with some people who lost their parents, and God gives them the extra dose of grace that, that we need at that time. And this is evidence of this. 
And Salome, just like her sister Mary, she's standing her ground. She's not wailing. She's not weeping. She's not shouting. She's not screaming. She's standing there helping to comfort her sister and Jesus just by her very presence. Neither does Salome fret about the fact that her own son is there and in potential danger because John was one of the disciples. She doesn't fret about that. And she doesn't resist when she hears Jesus say to her son, Behold thy mother, speaking of her sister. You know, she doesn't say, What are you talking about? I'm his mother. (laughs) What are you doing here? So in these two sisters, we have great testimony of the courage, the faith, the love, and the submission of women who have spent years walking with God. Don't we? Great testimony these two women have. Well, all four of the women who were here. And surely their presence and the presence of others at a further distance was well appreciated by the Lord. I am sure it blessed his heart to see them there. One thing we should admire about Mary's silence is that she did not speak up and say something in order to try to rescue Jesus. You know, if there was anyone there at the crucifixion site besides the Lord himself who possibly could have gotten Jesus down from that cross, it was Mary. She could have announced to everyone that she was his mother and that she knew he was conceived. She could have lied and said that he was conceived by Joseph or by another man. That preceded Joseph. She could have made that announcement that he was not the son of God. He was not who he claimed to be. And he had been like this ever since a child. He was a little bit mentally unstable. And such a public announcement from his mother, the only one who had been there at the time of his conception and been with him you know, at his birth, Jesus would no longer be a threat to the religious rulers. They might have even asked Pilate to just go ahead and take him down. You know, his his credentials would be destroyed if she made that kind of a statement. They wouldn't have to worry about him anymore, and then they wouldn't have to be concerned about his predictions about a third-day resurrection, you know, how they sealed the tomb and everything. And then the people might not rebel against them, too, because when a lot of masses of people found out what they had done in killing Jesus, they might have turned against the religious rulers. So this might have been their way out, you know. If Mary spoke up, then the people would say, oh, well, look, they're compassionate after all. They take Jesus down, and they give him to his mother, and he probably won't survive anyway because of his scourging and everything that he's been through, you know, with his wrists and his feet pierced. He probably wouldn't survive. But rather than speak a lie, Mary remained quiet. And this really is a testimony from silence as to his miraculous conception and his deity. Because if Jesus truly had been born from a human father, and Mary knew that by just saying the truth about that, she could maybe rescue her son I think that would have come from her lips at this time, don't you? But it wasn't the truth. He was not born from a human father. And she was a righteous woman, and she would not tell a lie, even if it would have saved her son. So let's move on. We've talked about the devoted at the cross. Let's move to looking at the declaration from the cross, which is now the third of the Lord's seven cross sayings. He spoke seven times. This is the third one. And, um, you know, as we discuss each one of these sayings, it becomes very clear to us that the Lord was in full possession of his mental faculties. He did not take that drug narcotic, did he? Purposely, because he wanted to have his full mind and he thought everything through. Everything he says is so purposeful. All the way from the time of the actual nailing of his wrists and feet to the cross when he repeatedly prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, to the controlled bowing of his head and the dismissal of his spirit into his Father's hand. 
all the way through. He has full possession of himself and everything he spoke in those seven sayings over the course of those six hours on the cross was very, very significant. They really give us a window into the mind and heart and spirit of the Lord during this time. These are the last words of Jesus before he dies. Now, he is going to speak again once he resurrects from the dead, but these are his last words before his death. And isn't there always something very significant about a person's last words? There is. We treasure the last words of someone we love. And we usually want to know what somebody uh, famous, maybe, had to say before they died. Now, I'm just going to give you three examples uh, of unsaved people and what they had to say. It's been recorded. There's this big book by Herbert Lockler, Lockyer of all the last sayings of famous people. And um, one of them happens to be the last words of the egotistical, sadistic emperor Nero. He was the one who burned Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. He was just an awful person in love with himself and very cruel. Do you know what his last words were before he died? What an artist dies in me. Isn't that? I mean, that was true to his per- That gives you a window into his person, doesn't it? An egotist right down to the very end. And then there are the last words of Voltaire. He was the French infidel who said he would totally destroy the Bible. The Bible would go out of existence. His last words were spoken to his doctor, and they were, I am abandoned by God and man. I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me just six more months of life. And then there's the skeptic Thomas Hobbes, who on his deathbed said this, I would give the whole world for one more day of life. I am about to take a leap into the dark. And then he did. But... There's a lot of contrast in that book, by the way, between the the last words of unbelievers and the last words of saints. Oh, my, you know, believers. Such a difference, such a vast difference. The last words of our Lord before his death really are a wonderful little peak, a little window into his spirit and mind in his last hours. His first saying was a word of forgiveness for his enemies. For those who were responsible for his death. His second saying was a word of salvation for a dying thief. What do these tell us about him? What a great person. Forgiving his enemies. You know, concerned about the salvation of the one dying next to him. And his third saying is a word of love for a, for a, uh, earthly, an earthly relationship. Even while he is attending to the eternal affairs of God by suffering as no man has ever suffered, because he suffered far more than just physical pain, did he not? We're going to talk about the separation of him, of God from God next week. He suffered like no one has ever suffered, and yet still we find him occupied with the affairs of individual human beings whether they're his enemies, a seeking sinner, or one who already belonged to him, his mother Mary. So what we want to ask as we look at all these sayings is what is the significance and what is being revealed? What does it mean when he looked down at that little company of four women and one young man and he fixed his eyes on Mary and he said to her, really by way of a commandment and an official statement, Woman, behold thy son. And then he shifted his gaze to John and he said, Behold thy mother. Well, in the simplest understanding behind those words, we know what he meant because of verse 27. Verse 27 tells us that from that hour, John took Mary to his own, to, you know, to care for. So clearly, what does that tell us? That tells us that both John and Mary understood what Jesus was indicating to them. They got it, didn't they? As the firstborn son of Mary, Jesus was performing the part of a dutiful child. He was providing for her. Since Joseph, her husband, has not appeared in the gospel narratives ever since Jesus was 12 years old, 
and the fact that Mary would need to be taken into John's care indicates to us that her husband is no longer in the picture. Joseph died somewhere between when Jesus was 12 and 30 years of age because he wasn't around when Jesus began his earthly ministry in Cana at that wedding. So Joseph is no longer there. So you see, Jesus, right to the end, is performing exactly what the law commanded. He is keeping all the law. He is honoring his father and his mother right to the very end. You see, he knows her distress. He knows that Simeon's prophecy is coming to pass in her heart, that that sword is passing through her soul as it is through his. He knows her need. And even in the very moment when he bears the sins for the entire world, yet he fulfills the law by caring for his earthly mother. But this raises a question in our minds. Or maybe it doesn't, but I'm going to raise it anyway. (laughs) In Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56, we learn that Mary had other children. Mary had other children. She was a virgin when Jesus was conceived by God the Holy Spirit. But after that, Joseph knew her, and they had other children. She did not remain a perpetual virgin. And she is not ever referred to in the scripture as the Virgin Mary. Never. She had other children. I know people will argue that the word for uh, his brothers is, is the word cousin. But it isn't. I know Greek. I took Greek. It's not the word cousin. It's the word brothers. Avelphos. And he also had sisters, we're told. He had at least four half-brothers. Their names were Joseph, I mean uh, James and Joseph, or Joseph, Simon and Jude. And he had sisters, we are told, which tells us he had at least how many? At least two to be plural sisters. Jesus was the oldest, but then he had at least six half-siblings. He was only about 33 years of age. So we know the others were all probably in their 20s. Maybe one of them was about 30. But they're all relatively young, so surely they're not dead. I don't know, maybe one died or something. But but we know that some of them were living because after his resurrection, they got saved and two of them wrote New Testament books. Who were they? James and Jude, right. So Jesus doesn't you know, do this because all of his brothers and sisters are dead. But he did not pass Mary's care onto the next oldest brother, did he? Rather, he says to John, behold your mother. Why? Why does he do this instead of to his brothers or sisters? Give her care. Well, we may not know everything involved, but we do know this. We do know that at this time, his brothers do not believe in him. John 7, 5, they are unbelievers. We certainly would be unwarranted if we said that they had no responsibility for their mother after this. I'm sure that they did. I'm sure that they visited her and took care of her and sent her Mother's Day cards and and provided for her financially. I'm sure they didn't want to to not do that. And, And we can't say that there must have been some kind of a rift between Mary and her children. That would just totally be unjustified. But we can, what we can assume is that John occupied a relationship with Mary that her own four sons did not. So what was the Lord doing when he committed his mother to John? Well, at least two things. On one, on one hand, he was entrusting one believer to another believer. This is, in no way does this release his own siblings from their responsibility to their mother. You know, scripture does indicate that there is a family responsibility that continues right to the very end. You and I are to care for our parents right to the end, aren't we? That is, that is scriptural. His physical, his physical half brothers were not being released from their responsibility to take care of the mother. But it is clear he's entrusting his believing mother to another believer in a very special way. Who would be able to give Mary the comfort that she needed at this time? Would it come from her unbelieving children? 
No, I imagine they would be furious with their older brother, half-brother, that he had put their mother through this. You know, we told you, Mom, all along that he was, uh, you know, a lunatic. And look what it's done, and look how it's tearing you apart. They would be no comfort to her, but who would be? John, remember John? He is a, he is a sensitive man. He was the one who laid his head on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper. He loved the Lord. He could never get over the fact that the Lord loved him. He would be the best one to comfort Mary because he was a believer. And he would say, Mary, we don't understand what this means, but we know who he is. And they could comfort one another in a special way, as you and I can at the time when we're grieving. And the unbelievers can't comfort us with the words of Scripture that comfort us, right? Like we can do with one another. But this is all remarkable because it is entirely in keeping with what um, exists between us as believers. You know, we are told that we all as believers have one father. And who is he? God. And therefore, we are not to call anyone else father in the spiritual sense because no one else, especially a mere man, has spiritual sovereignty over us. You know, we can call our physical father, father, but we're not to call any other person father in the spiritual sense except God. True believers share one father because we are brothers and sisters. We're brethren. Isn't that a warm, wonderful, tender understanding that we are of the family of God? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The fact is, as many of us know experientially, that the relationships we have with fellow believers are often a lot closer than we have with blood relations who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Even coming to Christ can cause tremendous rifts in a family, can't it? Or between a husband and a wife. I experienced that for five years with my husband. I was saved and he was not. I have certainly encountered that in my family that I came from. I didn't, my father would not speak to me after I came to Christ for nine years. He pulled my mother away from me and would not let her see me or have much to do with me. It causes divisions when a member of a family comes to Christ. Or it can. You know, it doesn't always, but it can. Some places in the world we know that they even have a funeral for the member who comes to Christ. The Jewish Orthodox Jews will have a mock funeral. That person is dead as far as they are concerned. They will disown them, even kill them, right? As Muslims sometimes will do. As a result, believers are charged with a God-given responsibility for other believers. And you know you are doubly blessed. You are doubly blessed when your closest family members are also committed Christians. You really are. Don't take that for granted. Because there are many of the Lord's people, many, who live and die with a terrible division between themselves and they, those who they love the most in terms of normal family bonds. But when it comes down to the struggle between light and darkness and belief and unbelief, other believers are your closest relations. And we might as well get used to one another because we're going to be with each other throughout all eternity. <laughs> we're the family of God forever. So the Lord was clearly revealing the nature of new relationships, showing that the bond of believers is closer than the bond of flesh. Now, of course, the Lord knew vividly that Simeon's prophecy was being fulfilled in his mother's aching soul. And so he spoke the words of this third saying from the cross in part to protect her from the further pain of watching him agonize and then actually die. You know, John does remove her right after Jesus speaks these words. From that hour, he took her from the scene. So he's doing that in part to protect her from the watching him further, you know, agonize and then die. But he's also saying this third saying from the cross for doctrinal reasons that would stretch across the centuries to come. So let's discuss another window revelation of Christ's third saying. Now put yourself again in Mary's place. If you were her, what term of address would you long to hear your son speak to you for one last time? What would that be? 
Mother, mother, do you think that Jesus didn't know that? That she would long to hear him call her mother? Of course he knew that. And yet how does he address her? Woman. It's the very same term he used when he spoke to her at the wedding in Cana, John 2, 4. It was not by accident that both of these occasions are recorded in the gospel of John, the gospel that most portrays the Lord Jesus as deity, as the Son of God, very Son of God. As God, you see, he is above all human relationships. Therefore, he does not address Mary as mother when he begins his earthly ministry in Cana. That's where he performed his first miracle, and he called her mother. He does not address her again as mother at the end of his earthly ministry in Calvary. You know, from Cana to Calvary, he never addresses her in recorded scripture as mother. Do you know you can search the entire Bible and he never once addressed her as mother? Hmm. And that wasn't a term of disrespect when he said woman. He calls her woman. It's not like my husband says to me sometimes, woman! (laughs) That's not how he's doing it. He's not doing it in harshness. It's a term of respect. But it certainly is not that intimate term mother, is it? And this may be part of the sword that pierced through her soul when, again, he addressed her as woman instead of mother. But the Lord was purposely, he's got his full mind, okay? He is purposely demonstrating that he was far more than Mary's son. He is God's son and he is man's savior. You see, the Lord Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that Mary would be lifted up to a place of elevation never intended by God, by Jesus, or by Mary herself. A place that was blasphemous in its idolatry of a mere woman. He was setting aside any tendency on the part of people historically to assign to Mary some elevated position and relationship to him. The fact is, he has already established this earlier in his ministry. He um, has already said that anybody who did his fa- knew his father's will and did it has the same kind of relationship to him as his mother Mary. You know, it's not in just John's gospel that he conveys this about Mary. Over in Luke 11, it, maybe you can turn there too. Luke 11, if you want to look at verse 27. You know, we found this tendency to elevate Mary even during the time of the Lord's ministry on earth. Because he's there, Jesus is, is in a crowd of people, Luke eleven twenty seven, and a certain woman, we are told, lifted up her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bear you. And how does Jesus respond to that woman? By saying, you're right, blessed is the woman who bore me. She should be elevated above every other woman. Is that how he responds? No, he corrects her right away by by saying, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. The spiritual over the physical relationship to him was also set straight by the Lord in another occasion, which is recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all four Gospels set this straight, okay? This event is found in Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 8. I'll tell you about it. You'll remember. The Lord was teaching in a home that was literally thronged with people. They were pressing to get in. There were people inside, outside the house, you know. and, And then he gets word that his mother and his brethren are there. Why were they there? They wanted to get in to get him. They thought he was a lunatic, that he had lost his mind. I don't, you know, the brothers were probably dragging Mary along and they wanted to just take him home. But when he gets word that his mother and brothers are outside, what does he say? He says, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And then he stretches forth his hands 
to the people in the house, his followers, his disciples, and he says, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, I do not want to be mean-spirited here at all. I do not want to do that. But my duty one day, as I stand and give account of myself before the Lord Jesus, my duty is to teach what the scripture has to say. Not to try to not offend people, okay? It's to teach because we believe that the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. So we want to know what the scripture has to say about Mary and Mariolatry, which is prevalent in the world today and has been for centuries. And I have personal experience in this area because I come from a church where Mary was indeed venerated. And I have seen Mariolatry firsthand in practice in places around this world pretty well traveled and I have seen it from Rome all the way to Santiago Chile I have seen people worship and venerate Mary I saw in in Santiago in Santiago Chile I said it right the first time should have you Santiago um, a statue of Mary that was as tall as as the steeple on this church and people were making a pilgrimage to it from all over Chile um, to worship and ask for miracles and, and pray to Mary. My own grandmother prayed to Mary, had a rosary, and she did get saved on her deathbed just like the penitent thief. But her whole life, you know, she, she prayed to Mary with her rosary. So I have experience in this. It is idolatry to render to Mary the homage and the honor which is due to Jesus Christ alone. What did the script, what does the scripture have to say about this and what did the Lord Jesus have to say about this? Well, here is the truth when you put it all together. Here's the truth. If the womb of any one of you here present in this room had borne the Lord Jesus, it would give you no closer of a spiritual relationship to him than any one of the rest of us who knows the will of God and does it. That is the truth. There is no particular spiritual virtue pertaining to Mary because she bore Jesus in her womb. Yes, she was highly favored of God, which literally means she was graciously chosen by God to be the vessel, you know, to be given the physical privilege to birth him, but that gave her no ongoing special relationship to him. She had to put her faith in him in order to be born again, just as every one of us has to. We should admire her as a godly woman, which she was, but she was not above us as someone to worship and someone to pray to, and someone to bow down to, and go to for miracle healings, and make statues and icons of, and kiss them, etc. You know, when Gabriel first made his announcement to her, he specifically said, Blessed art thou among women, not above women. And when she went to her cousin Elizabeth's house, who was she was pregnant with John the Baptist, what did Elizabeth say? Exactly the same thing. Blessed art thou among women. And Mary, did you notice, she is purposely presented in the background. We've been in the life of Christ for many, many years. How many times have we talked about Mary? Not many, because she's purposely kept in the background. Why? Because the tendency of people, even back to the Lord's earthly ministry, was to elevate her because of her physical relationship. So in his third cross saying, in which he lovingly provided for Mary's welfare, he was also clearly precluding generations of people trying to elevate her by saying, no, not so, don't do it. He addresses her purposely as woman. He's not disrespectful to her in any way, shape, or form. Yet he did not speak that special term of endearment, mother. 
which he already said was for anyone who does the will of God. You know, he had to do this. He had to do this so we would realize that the eternal Son of God sustains the same blessed relationship to any one of us who belong to him. We are the family of God, and we will be so eternally. When And Mary did the will of God. She knew the will of God, and she did it. So in that sense, she too is his mother, just like we are his mother and his sister, you know, when, when we do that. When Mary was called woman by Jesus back in Cana, you know, when she, she did try to act like a mother there for a while, didn't she? <laughs> she wanted to put her will above the Lord's, you know. It was the beginning of his ministry. Okay, show your stuff. So she subtly hinted to him that they were out of wine. But he, when he immediately put her in her rightful place, she wasn't, she wasn't insulted. She went to the servants, and what did she say? See, she did know her son. She, she knew he was going to do it so the host and hostess wouldn't be embarrassed. But she said, whatsoever he says to do, do it. Do whatsoever he commands you to do. I, I have that underlined in my Bible because that's such a good piece of advice. Do whatsoever he commands you to do. And of course, he did save the day, didn't he? By turning water into wine. Well, at the foot of the cross, likewise, she submissively obeys his instructions because she does depart from the scene with John. So she herself did whatsoever he commanded, Jesus commanded her to do. You know, the Mary of Scripture is far different from the Mary who is worshipped by so many people today. And I don't know, I'm sure you don't see it as much here as you would if you traveled to South America or many places in the world where it is just out there, it is open, it is prevalent. Mary worship. The true Mary is much different than that, the, the Mary. And there's many Marys. They've got all kinds of different Marys. A lot of them with um, a dish plate behind their head, you know. Do you think Mary went around with a dish plate behind her head? <laughs> the true Mary realized that she was a sinner, just like everyone else who needed a Savior. When she first received that grand announcement from Gabriel, remember what she said? My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. She understood she needed a Savior. She's the first one to ever call Jesus a Savior. Holy Scripture presents Mary to us as a submissive, gentle, godly woman. Never as a proud Madonna or as the Queen of Heaven decked out with all kinds of royal diadems. Notice that Jesus did bear Mary, did bid Mary to look to John as her son before he bade John to take care of Mary. You see, who was to take care of who? John, a teenager, was to take care of Mary. Mary, maybe a 50-year-old woman, was not to take care of John. Jesus is the one giving the commandment here, right? He's the one in charge, not his mother. He is providing for Mary. He's not submitting to her. He's the sovereign, and she is the subject submitting to him. The idea that people need to pray to Mary instead of to God, instead of to Christ, because she can influence her son more than we can, is just plain not true. It's false. It's not in the scripture. Nothing in the scripture even remotely suggests that. There is one mediator between God and man, and who is that? The Lord Jesus. You know, think of this. Mary was present at the foot of the cross, when the penitent thief prayed to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Did you catch that? The thief did not look down at Mary and ask her to remember him to Jesus. The thief did not ask Mary to intervene on behalf of him to her son, did he? He went directly to Jesus, even though Mary was there. And when we find Mary in Acts 1.14 in the upper room with the other saints on the, on the day of Pentecost, it tells us that she was praying with the saints. The saints were not praying to 
her. Again, she was among them, but she was not above them. Mary herself was not born by way of an immaculate conception. In other words, she was not conceived um, without a human father. I don't know if I just did double negatives, but she she had a father, okay? She had a human father. Now, it is taught that she did not, that she was born, you know, immaculate conception. But we are given the name of her father in the scripture. In Luke 3.23, we are told her father's name was Heli, H-E-L-I. When you read that, you might be confused because it sounds like it's Joseph's father. But it's really saying that it's Joseph's father-in-law. We have the name of Joseph's father over in Matthew's genealogy. Joseph's father was Jacob. Mary's father was Heli. That means that she was born with the Adamic sin nature, just like all the rest of us. And she was not only a sinner by birth, but a sinner by choice. She needed to be born again, just like we do. She did not bodily resurrect into heaven, as the Catholic dogma of the Assumption of Mary teaches. They teach that she bodily resurrected into heaven, just like the Lord. Rather, like all believers, Mary's soul went immediately to be present with the Lord and her body still lies somewhere awaiting the resurrection. She is not the mother of the church as the Roman Catholic Church officially declared her to be in 1965. She is absolutely, positively not a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ, which is also taught. There are crosses in this world today that have crucifixes that have Jesus on one side and you turn it around and Mary is on the other side. There is a great deal of heretical teaching that says that she is just as much man's redeemer as Christ. But the Bible clearly teaches over and over again, that we come to the Father only through Jesus Christ. You see, knowing ahead of time that all these false teachings about Mary would emerge during the course of church history is undoubtedly one of the reasons that the Lord orchestrated circumstances while he was on the cross that would take Mary from the cross before he finished that redemptive work. When he cries out, it is finished, guess what? Mary is not even there. Well, in John 19, 27, we're told by John himself, and he ought to know because he was there, that he fulfilled the Lord's desire by immediately removing Mary from the scene and taking her into his care. And when did he do it? That very hour. This precedes... 12 noon, when the darkness came over the land. So he took her away that very hour. Jesus was protecting her from the further agony of watching him suffer and seeing him die, and also he was making sure that Mary was not present when the redemptive work was accomplished, so there would be no biblical reason whatsoever to claim that she was a co-redemptrix with him, which is absolutely, totally absurd anyway. That is absurd. If Mary had been nailed to a cross with her son there, which they didn't do because they did not crucify women, but let's say she was nailed to a cross, her death would have saved absolutely nobody. No one. She was not a Passover perfect spotless lamb. As I just said, she was born with the Adamic sin nature. You know, there is nothing about Mary that fulfilled messianic prophecy, was there? Other than the fact that she was the fulfillment of Isaiah 9.14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. But did she go around speaking in parables? Did she cleanse the lepers? Did she give sight to the blind? Did she, I mean, I just go on and on. Did she get betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? 
You know, it's just absurd to say that she was a co-redeemer with the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men or women whereby we must be saved. Only by Jesus Christ. Also, there's this. When we read of those who are present at Calvary when the Lord actually did yield up the ghost, we read who was there, and it's, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Salome. Who's missing from that original five? Mary and John. Why? Because they had indeed left the scene after Jesus spoke to them. They were sensitive to knowing his will, and they did obey it. From extra-biblical sources, we learn that the Apostle John spent approximately 30 years living in Ephesus. In fact, that's where he wrote the Gospel of John. That's where he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Tradition tells us that Mary lived and died and was buried in what city do you think? Ephesus. Ephesus. They did indeed obey the Lord's command to them while he was on the cross. Let's pray. Father, may we, just as Mary and John, may we be wise to obey you in whatsoever you have commanded us to do. That is the wisest thing we can do. Even if we don't understand, simply obey. And Father, now we ask that you would help us to be strong in our faith in these last days. Thank you indeed that we have a great God in whom to put our faith. And Father, give us the peace of knowing that this world, even in all of its turmoil, and our nation in the turmoil it is in and in the crisis going on up in New York and New Jersey with this terrible hurricane, we still can know assuredly that everything is ruled over by the living lordship of your Son. And now, Father, we ask also, as I'm thinking about Israel and what awaits her, and thank you for the promise that she will rise in faith, but I ask that you would turn many of the Jewish people to thoughts about your son, that they would be brought to have a true faith in their Messiah before the the coming of the tribulation, which I believe is at hand. Bring many Jewish people to you, Lord. And thank you for the promise that you will one day save Israel, that there will be peace in Israel. Now we ask that you would bless our nation in this critical upcoming week, Lord. And use every woman here this week to be salt and light for you. And bring us all back safely next Tuesday. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.